Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. With me today will be a man who has written more books about the Civil War than most people have read. He's been called the Bruce Catton of our generation. Please join us when we return with William C. Davis on Civil War Talk Radio. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, and with me today is William C. Jack Davis, who teaches history at Virginia Tech. Jack, it's good to talk to you today. Good afternoon. Pleased to talk to you, Jerry. Well, as I said in the introduction, you've written more books about the Civil War than most of us have actually read. How many is that at this point? I don't know. It's somewhere approaching 50, I guess. That, that is an incredible output. I have a lot of past sins to account for. <laughs> well, we'll see if we can dredge up as many as possible in the next hour. Uh, what got you started in, in the field? Uh, interest in family history, actually. I was, I was born in Independence, Missouri. Uh, which was, of course, uh, a divided state, and my my family had been divided in the war era, so it was still kind of a a lively topic among the family, even when I was a kid in the 1950s. And uh, I got a little interested in family history, and then discovering that I had ancestors on both sides of the war led me into finding out about what their experiences had been like. And uh, sort of one thing led to another, that, and a a desire to, uh, to write the two just naturally came together. Did you study history? Did you intend to make this a career? Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I originally set out to be an architect, but that was in the fifth grade, and I changed my mind. Uh, but I, I've studied history in, in uh, college and graduate school and had intended to go on to, uh, to the University of Chicago to get a doctorate, hoping to teach. But I started writing and publishing articles on the Civil War when I was um, an undergraduate, and that led to an 
invitation for a summer job in 1969, right after I got my master's thesis, back in Pennsylvania. And I went there for the summer job, expecting to go on to Chicago to work on the doctorate. And instead, the summer job lasted 21 years. What was that? Uh, I was with a magazine called Civil War Times, which then was the only publication around, dealing just for the Civil War. It was a monthly magazine that had a circulation of about fifteen or 16,000 subscribers. That was in 1969. And in fact, the owner and operator of the magazine thought that he might have to euthanize the magazine shortly because the Civil War centennial was passed and any bulge in interest uh, would have been passed with it. But of course, he didn't do that. And I think today that magazine has a subscriber list of about 150,000 subscribers and it spawned half a dozen other imitators since. It's, it really began a very large periodical publishing industry devoted to the Civil War. That, there's no other period in American history that has anything comparable, is there? There's not, no. You have your blue and gray, uh, north and south, American Civil War, no. and you still have Civil War times going. Yeah, and, and there are a host of smaller things. There are, there are, I think there are still magazines for, uh, for people involved in reenacting and living history. There's some place, I think, there's a magazine being published called The Civil War Woman that, that just uh, is aimed at the women who are interested in the field. It's, it's, really kind of amazing. There's nothing quite comparable to it. The uh, Western history, which really means kind of the plains and, and uh, Rocky Mountain West, has had a, a few magazines from time to time, and I guess there's two or three that deal with World War II, and I believe there's still one dealing with Vietnam, but uh, none of them come anywhere close to matching the, uh, the depth of penetration that the Civil War has all across uh, you know, the American public interest today. That, that's right. There's, uh, I know there's a journal on just the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, that's uh, been published, gee, for 15 years, I think. You, you, uh, that's why it's Somebody's going to start a magazine on the first day at Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you want just the, the left flank or just the right <laughs> yeah, flank? Just right. Specific here. And only men whose last name begins with L. That's right. Let's, let's <laughs> focus our attention a little. Well, that... that uh, that's true, and there are also uh, scholarly magazines as well, like Civil War History from... Uh, right, uh, and for a few years there was one called Columbiad, which was aimed at the scholarly audience. It was published by the same publishers as the Civil War Times magazine. Is, is that still going, or is that folded? No, it folded, um, I guess, about two years ago. I don't think it ever achieved a lot of circulation. As indeed, Civil War History, I don't think, has more than two or 3,000 subscribers. No, the, 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 the academic journal, which has no pictures and ads, right. it, it's right. just strictly for a professional audience. So it was begun nearly 50 years ago, and it was the first attempt to bridge a gap, really, between the scholarly community and the general public, because the original thrust of Civil War history was articles that would not just be well-researched, but that were actually readable and enjoyable by people other than academics. And for uh, several years, it kind of maintained that editorial thrust before it, it probably inevitably gravitated more toward the standard academic and scholarly journals. So today, very, very few lay readers, I think, would be subscribing to Civil War history. They'll, they'll go for one of the half dozen other magazines that are better aimed at a general audience. I, I think that's right. Without being saying any, anything to counter your your old alma mater, I would argue that North and South 
might be attracting the most academic writers of the popular journals today. Is it? it may well be. I don't. I confess, I don't. I don't see any of the magazines, and I haven't since I left the magazine business in 1990. I think it's a good idea not to visit houses you used to own or to look at magazines you used to publish because you'll you'll never like what you see. Boy, that's good advice. <laughs> I also don't visit ex-wives. <laughs> now, there's a topic we will scrupulously avoid this week. Um, Although we'll be talking with uh, Catherine Clinton about wives of uh, Civil War officers at some point in the future, uh, because uh, every topic can be turned to the Civil War in one way or another. Oh, certainly, just about, just about. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: Why, why is there so much interest? In your case, you said it's because uh, you had a family connection. Uh, a lot of people, though, might share a background like mine, where my grandparents came from the old country, so. Uh, right. I, I have no roots going back to the 1860s in the United States, and yet I spent my career working on it too. Uh, what what is it about the war? And, and people in Europe are fascinated by the war. Oh, certainly there are. You know, of course, you're familiar with Civil War roundtables, and many of your listeners will be as well. But at one time, there were Civil War roundtables in uh, in England, in uh, Belgium, uh, there may France, Australia. There may even have been one in Japan. Maybe still is. I don't know. Uh, it's it, the question you ask kind of runs hand in hand with the, the other seemingly puzzling puzzling thing that, in my experience, at least probably half of the people who are die-hard students of the Confederacy live in the North. Uh, you know, people who you could understand that, that the people like me, whose ancestors were deeply involved in it, would naturally feel some kind of interest. But as you, you cited in your own instance, uh, people who got off the boat in 1900 from Italy or, or East Europe or Ireland by moving here have still cannot escape the fact that they're living in a culture that's just permeated by the Civil War and is part of the cultural baggage they take on by becoming Americans, just as so many in the North can't help but somehow or other feel an identification with the cause of the South, even if they don't really understand what it was or much about it. Part of it is certainly romanticism. A lot of it is mythology. It's, it's you know, Myth isn't just something that happened to the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks. We we live in a culture full of myths of our own creation, and the Civil War has been the biggest generator of American myth. If you live in the eastern part of the country, you can't escape the names of generals and, and Civil War uh, politicians on highways and, and motels. Uh, the battlefield parks are all over the place, east of the Mississippi. And it generated the most of our most much of our most dynamic and long-lasting literature and art, and even music. Elvis Presley's, Presley's first big hit, Love Me Tender, was really a Civil War song, or a lead. Uh, Mitch Miller had a big hit with the Yellow Rose of Texas. Nobody remembers Mitch Miller today, but he was hot in 1952. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you just can't get away from the Civil War culture, and, and a large chunk of the population has kind of no... No salvation. There's nothing to keep them from getting sucked into it somehow. And it's also very, very interesting. It's an incredible story. And it's all ours. We don't have to share it with anybody else. It is, it is America's most felt history, the, the history that strikes us all most deeply. Uh, or yeah, us, at least. yeah it's, it's our Iliad. Now, you've written a great deal about the South. You won the Jefferson Davis Prize three times for your, your books on aspects of Confederate history. What is it that, that fascinates people? I, I, I've heard that if you look at the reenactor population, for example, that if, if the reenactor Confederates 
out, outnumber the Union reenactors uh, if, so much that if the real Confederates had that advantage, they would have won the war. <laughs> You're probably right. Why? Why do I know when I lived in Indiana, there were more Confederate reenactors there than than yeah. the Union reenactors. Sure. Why the fascination? Is it just the, the mythology? Is there? I, I think the big the uh, underdog. Two big things. One is the lost cause myth, which is a host of things, but. Uh, they're dealing with the causes of the war, with the aftermath of the war, how the war was fought and why it was won or lost. But a, a part of that mythology is this thing that appeals to anybody, not just Americans, of the, of the heroic underdog who somehow, against all the odds, seems to manage to sustain itself for an uh, incredibly long uh, uh, period of sacrifice before it goes down. The, uh, it's hard to escape dynamic characters like Robert E. Lee who um, somebody once wrote a little essay saying that he was the only man in history who was came close to equaling the virtues of Christ that might be going a little far but it shows how some people you know will view Lee and then of course the fact that in the south uh, southerners are the only Americans who ever lost a war you know unless you include the, the outcome of the equivocal outcome of the Vietnam War mm-hmm. And the only ones who've ever suffered uh, a military occupation, and something like that uh, leaves large emotional scars that a lot of people simply can't escape. Just as many of our uh, our soldiers from the um, from the Viet- of the Vietnam War generation are still today fighting with with memories that they can't get away from, memories of frustration, of, of being unappreciated, etc. So the, the South kind of needed to create a lost cause myth to help it deal with with the hard realities of defeat. Uh, I don't read depressing 19th century German philosophers much, but <laughs> Nietzsche once said that we have art in order not to die of the truth. And myth is an art that people often create in order not to die of, of facing the truth of their history. Uh, just as we have Holocaust deniers in, in in Europe and Germany now, and I think the South needed mythology to psychologically overcome the trauma of being defeated. And uh, current generations have have, have uh, adopted that, often in complete ignorance of the real facts of the Civil War or the Southern experience. Now, what happens when that myth uh, and that Nietzsche quote is very very apt? What happens when one myth created to survive a certain truth uh, creates an equally painful situation. So what I'm getting at is is the uh, the Confederate battle flag issue, yeah. which to many people represents heritage and bravery and honor and the lost cause, but other Americans see it as a reminder of slavery and uh, a cause that had it won would have uh, certainly lengthened uh, slavery in the United States. I think what you have is, in an instance like that, is an irreconcilable conflict. Uh, not to, to borrow a phrase from Stewart, <laughs> or now, he was irrepressible. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the flag controversy, it seems to me both sides are arguing from positions of ignorance, and instead are arguing from positions of based in a faith. And you know, you know people don't compromise on faith. Uh, faith is something you believe because you believe it, not because of evidence. The, uh, the people who are, who are defending use of the Confederate battle flag as a symbol of, of uh, pride and heritage, etc., 
are simply ignorant of how and when it started getting used in the 1940s and the 1950s. They're ignorant of the of the, the irre, irrefutable fact that the uh, uh, that it's that it's it's offensive to uh, to American blacks. On the other hand, American blacks who are maintaining that it's a symbol of racism are also ignorant of the fact that it was, you know, it was not the national flag of a nation that certainly was founded on slavery. It was the flag that the common soldiers went into battle under, and overwhelmingly the common soldiers were not fighting to preserve slavery, They were, though, though they were certainly in agreement with its preservation, but they were fighting because their homeland was being invaded. They're, they were answering ancient imperatives that had nothing to do with with slavery. So, so both, both parties in the conflict are, are uh, kind of ignoring facts and, and that and don't want to be confused by the facts because the, the flag issue involves faith and internally held beliefs that they're not going to turn loose of. In my experience, whenever you come up with to the point of trying to debunk a myth, you often find it's better simply not to try to convince some people because it's not worth the effort. Not because they're stupid, but because you're, you're tampering with their faith and people don't let us do that. And that's that's a hard one to get around. I I think there's an excellent new book coming, by the way. You may know yeah. of it already by uh, John Kosky, titled "The Confederate Flag: America's Most Embattled Banner," and it's it's a marvelous work studying the whole history of that Confederate battle flag and how it went from being the flag that the soldiers fought under into being a, an emblem that, in fact, was protected by state law in many southern states from being used on things like T-shirts and signs, and then somehow turned, got turned into a good old boy emblem and into a symbol of, of uh, resistance to, to desegregation, etc. It's, it's a marvelous work. What was the author's name again, please? John Kosky, C-O-S-K-I. John is historian at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. That does sound like a fascinating piece. It's, it's outstanding. The treatment of the flag has really changed over the years. The uh, uh, of all flags, just wandering off the topic, the the American flag, uh, which which periodically is, is subject to to threats of a constitutional amendment to prevent burning of, uh, was in when I was a young person something that was not to be, as you said, shown on a T-shirt or a, right. a pants. A patch sewn onto a pair of jeans that was considered disrespectful, and today it's it's considered uh, patriotic apparently to wear the flag in all kinds of circumstances. Yeah, in virtually uh, any manifestation. I think I think that probably began in Britain during the um, early 1960s when the Union Jack started appearing on shopping bags and all sorts of other things, and then we copied that. That's right. We take a lot of things certainly from, from British tradition. Well. There are many more things uh, we're going to talk about here, but we're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back on Civil War Talk Radio with William C. Davis. <laughs> 